Good morning, and welcome to Midpoint Wednesday. I'm Shelley Reback, your host for WMNF's Mid-Florida, Mid-Week, Mid-Morning Dose of News and Public Affairs with a Local Perspective. You are listening to WMNF 88.5 FM, Tampa Bay's only independent commercial-free FM radio, which is brought to you by you because we are supported by generous listeners just like you. So first off, I want to thank all of our listeners who supported the fall fundraiser last week, especially those of you who showed your support for this show. I'm honored, and you have my deepest gratitude. Midpoint made our fundraising goal, but unfortunately the station as a whole fell pretty far short of its overall goal for the week. But we understand that this has been a difficult time to fundraise, what with all the appeals for hurricane relief, solicitations from candidates running in the election, and the general increase in the cost of everything as corporations jack up the prices of goods well beyond the expected inflation caused by pandemic shortages, the Ukraine war, and the China lockdowns. You know, it's really tough all over. But if you can still dig a little bit deeper to make a donation to help keep community radio in your ears, we will be very thankful. And we'll shower you with swag. Or you can direct 5% of your donation to go to Hurricane Relief by Metropolitan Ministries. And then you can support two good causes at once simply by going to our website, wmnf.org slash donate. And if you are so moved, you can hit the drop-down menu and direct your donation to MPW for Midpoint Wednesday. So again, thank you for all your support for the best little radio station on planet Earth. Now, on to the show. I've got some spooky stories for you today. But too bad they are all real. Halloween is just around the corner And as I was preparing for this show, I realized just how fortuitous it was that it is the season for evil monsters and ghosts, because nothing says evil monsters and ghosts like a show about the state of Florida utilities, and the Florida Power and Light Corporation in particular. The story of why your electric bills are so high and your power rates are getting higher, and why some elections in Florida have been corrupted by FPL's corporate malfeasance and why there is so much disinformation about it all. That is the story of Florida Power and Light, FPL. We've got stories about their real live tricks and evil plots, their fake news, their ghost candidates, and all manner of down and dirty doings around the state, all of which is in the service of ripping off Florida utility consumers buying legislation, and fighting any necessary and sensible efforts to promote renewable energy, address climate change, or reduce pollution. So to help us understand the horror show that has been the Florida Power and Light Company and how their dirty tricks affect you and your utility rates, I've invited Susan Glickman to join us today. Susan is the current director of Florida Clinicians for Climate Action and a consultant to the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy. And she has been a fixture in Tallahassee for more than a couple of decades, lobbying and researching and observing the powers that be who are behind the power in our homes. Susan has a lot to say about FPL, Florida Power and Light. So welcome, Susan Glickman. Hi, Shelley. Thank you for having me. So let me start by asking you, in keeping with our Halloween theme, 
Is FPL the most evil corporation in Florida or the most monstrous corporation in Florida? (laughs) Well, there's lots to talk about here. And what's really scary is climate change. And climate change, we've just come off watching Hurricane Ian and just as happened in 2004 with Hurricane Charlie, this monster storm. Of course, Hurricane Charlie was no nowhere near that big, was headed for us. And no, but of, there were multiple yeah. uh, storms that year in oh, 2004. Oh, f- four of them. Yeah. yeah. I, in fact, held a press conference up in Tallahassee to talk about sort of the connection, the nexus with climate change and hurricanes. So that's what's scary. So the context for this conversation about people's electric bills and their rates and the bills going up is also scary, particularly at a time uh, where our insurance is going through the roof. And electricity bills and your insurance bills are very much state issues. So that's why it's important we talk about them because there are some things happening that are global, you know, Russia's attack of uh, Ukraine and so forth that have caused gas prices, for instance. And I mean the gas, the methane fossil gas that runs power plants, not necessarily the petroleum that you're putting in your car, although that is also affected. Um, I say that because we're going to talk about that today. Well, you know, I'm glad you talked about the fact that uh, this this is really a state issue. And here on Midpoint, you know, we try to bring all... All of our our issues and 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 guess back to how it relates to our lo our, lo- our mm-hmm. locality, you know where we are. So uh, let's talk about why people should care about Florida Power and Light, especially people in the Tampa Bay region who get don't even get their power from that company. You know they may be getting power from Tampa Electric in Hillsborough or Duke Energy in Pinellas, and FPL isn't our power company, so. You know, why should we here locally care about them and what they're doing? So Florida Power and Light is the biggest utility in the state. 75% of Florida is covered by what's known as investor-owned utilities. Florida Power and Light, Duke Energy, which is the second, and then there's Tampa Electric, which is smaller uh, by contrast. The very same concerns um, that one might have about, particularly when it comes to your electric bill, are the same. That's not any different. And the players um, in the big utilities often, you know, cooperate together and collaborate together. So it's very much the same. The big investor-owned monopoly utilities in the state um, have an enormous amount of political clout. I mean, that's not really a surprise. There are other industries just like that. What happens with Florida Power and Light is they became part of the political story um, and, and this has been covered widely by a lot of different outlets, the Miami Herald, Tampa Bay Times. And Orlando, and Sentinel. Orlando Sentinel. Yeah, it has done a great yeah. job. Let's, let's, let's re- start with that because early voting starts next week uh, here in Florida. And what we've learned from some of those outlets, news outlets that you just mentioned, is that FPL played a big secret role in the last elections. Uh, especially in South Florida and I think in, in the Orlando area and Central Florida as well, it's been reported that their money and their monkey business made a huge difference in certain state Senate races uh, that ultimately affected the course of our Florida legislature. And in fact, there have been prosecutions already, right? And investigations are continuing into just what happened in those uh, state races. So, uh, you know, they're looking at what 
what was Florida Power and Light's role or its consultants' role in apparently sponsoring ghost candidates? Um, this is where the spooky theme comes in and the scary theme comes in because they it, it, it's, it looks like, as, as the reports have come in, that they were sponsoring funding ghost candidates, meaning candidates who didn't really do any campaigning. They didn't have a real public profile, uh, but, but uh, dark money was out there basically telling voters that they had a certain political stance that would appeal to certain voters, um, even though they never intended to get them elected, they wanted to divert. Uh, they were just siphoning votes. Yes, that's it. That's they exactly were siphoning right. votes. Uh, so what was reported is that um, the president of Florida Power and Light had personally moved a big chunk of money, about $10 million, to a political action committee associated with um, associated industries. So in Tallahassee, there are a couple of entities that are really sort of front groups for issues. Associated industries in the Florida Chamber and the big businesses. You can go to the Florida Chamber and there's seven utility executives on the board. It's very common. And uh, so that money is part of the money that funded mailings for these candidates. So the race in Miami was a friend of mine, Senator Jose Javier Rodriguez. In fact, I would have been, you know, the first person probably to come talk with him about energy issues. And he was a big critic of... of uh of the power companies, was big critic of not just Florida Power and Light, but they were charging people, as did Duke Energy, in advance for new nuclear power plants that they never that they never built. built. Right. right. So he would go to the Florida Public Service, and that Commission was approved by up. the legislature, right? That they were allowed, or the Public Service Commission, that they were allowed to do that. That's that's correct. That was a Jeb Bush creation in 2006 when the Florida legislature passed a law that allowed these monopoly utilities which the uh, the framework of the monopoly franchise agreement is they're not supposed to charge until they deliver the power. So this was a big departure from utility regulation. They could start to charge in advance. And Duke did that, or actually originally uh, Progress. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that took a lot of money, billions of dollars, out of this community uh, to pay for power plants that never got built. And that right. was the Florida legislature uh, that allowed that. At the time, we were 48% reliant on gas, and that was sort of Jeb Bush's narrative at the time, that we need to diversify our fuel mix. And I spent about five years fighting uh, multiple proposals to build coal-fired power plants. And then there were the four nuclear reactors, two at Turkey Point in South, in the Miami area, and then uh, two up in Crystal River area, um, Levy County, north of, of the Crystal River plant. So let me, let me explain how these utilities make yeah. money. They get a guaranteed rate of return, a range of a rate of return on their capital expenditure. So the incentive is on putting uh, you know, uh, concrete in the ground or undergrounding or transmission lines or, or something uh, that they can then get a rate of return. So we've, we've been talking about what's going on with the rates. So 
about every three years, they'll come up for a rate case and they're going to hope to put a major asset into their rate base, which would be a power plant. So I would uh, submit here that not too terribly long ago, Tampa Electric did that. They were shoot, shutting down coal units. And at some point, they make a decision, do we try to build another power plant? Or in this case, they switched it over to gas. Or do we try to meet that need with energy efficiency or, or less expensive ways? Um, but when the incentive with utility regulation is on putting capital expenditures, they're not incentivized to help people use less energy. So that's one of the problems. So one of the things that I've historically worked on is getting conservation goals set. Right In Florida, out of 52 utilities around the country... Florida Power and Lights, 51 out of 52. Duke is 48 out of 52. And Tampa Electric is 46 out of 52 in offering efficiency. That matters to people, particularly who are of lower income. So there is a concept called high energy burden. So people of lower income pay a higher percentage of, you know, their disposable income. And everybody's stretched these days. So your insurance is through the roof and your electric bill is through the right. roof. So when they don't, when utilities and don't. And rents are through the roof. And rents are through the roof, all of it. And yeah. so people are really suffering. So. You've got the the capital expenditures, and then you have a thing uh, where they do a course correction, and they're doing that on gas. So all the utilities bet on fossil gas. Now, part of what's happened over the years, I mentioned there was a period where there were a lot of proposals to build coal plants. We, in a perfect world, a gas-fired power plant would be half the emissions of a coal plant. But when they frack with hydraulic fracturing the gas, that releases methane and these emissions, from us, which are super pollutants. And then, you know, you're piping that gas all the way from what? Pennsylvania so, to Florida. Pennsylvania or, or Alabama, yeah. that's right. So Florida Power and Light's parent company and one of Duke Energy's parent company or subsidiaries, they own a pipeline. They Mm -hmm. built the Sable Trail pipeline that comes from Alabama to central Florida. So, again, they're incentivized to lock in gas because they're making money. Okay, uh, you're listening to Midpoint on WMNF Community Radio 88.5, and we're talking to Susan Glickman, who's a longtime clean energy advocate and lobbyist, about how the activities of the utility companies uh, in so many ways affect our utility rates locally and even our elections all around the state of Florida. So if you have questions or comments about any of these issues, give us a call at 813-239-9663. You can email us at dj at wmnf.org or you can text us at 813-433-0885. So Susan, I'm going to take a minute and uh, bring uh, Larry from Sarasota on the air. Great. He's called in and he's been patient. Larry, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, I just wanted to make a, a positive comment on my power bill. Um, everything that Susan's saying could positively could be right. Uh, she's deep into it, and she knows. But, you know, I built a little house about nine years ago, and my insurance bill is about 250 a month. My property taxes are another 250 a month. My water bill is always 70 because they've got minimums, and it's water and sewer. Plus, on my water bill, I had to pay the county an impact fee of $10,000 to build, you know, have it put in. And then on top of that, 
Uh, my health insurance is 800 a month. My electric bill runs right around $65 a month on the average. You built an efficient house then. <laughs> well, I did, but even as a Florida cracker, even growing up, I never we didn't have air conditioning until I was 28 years old. That was 1980-something, so I'm used to not running the AC. Well, there you go. Oh, well, yeah, but, I mean, I've had the AC on all summer, and it, it is very efficient. I use the isofoam, and I've got the... Uh, the, the so so is your point that you're satisfied with your your power bill? Is that your point? Well, well, my point being is, in the world of cost, my cable bill and my cell phone bill are higher than my Florida Power and Light bill. Uh, okay. Nice about Florida, well, no, what's nice about Florida Power and Light, when I've got a problem, it's not like calling the cable company. They fix it. Okay, I, good. I, I'm just saying, on, on the one side of it, it's the lowest bill I have per month. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for your comments, Larry. Yeah. Appreciate it. And uh, so Larry's satisfied with his utility bill. But I think Larry is missing um, the point about how some of the activities of, of these utility companies, uh, it's uh, they, they affect more than just the bill that you see in your mailbox every month. Because, you know, without building in resiliency and, you know, uh, planning for climate change and, you know, decreasing the kinds of pollution that you were just mentioning before we took Larry's call. You know, all of those things have so much effect on all of his other bills. Like, for example, insurance, home insurance, you know, the effects of climate change, I think everybody now, if they didn't know it before, if they didn't feel it before, they're certainly going to feel it soon in their home insurance bill. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's their home insurance bill is yeah. going to go through the roof with the the uh, losses because of Hurricane Ian. Um, and not just the people in the area of Southwest Florida who were most directly impacted by the hurricane, but all of us throughout Florida who pay home insurance... Um, um, our bills are going to go up. Yeah, there, there's the, no question that this yeah. superstorm, it intensified in 90 miles. It essentially went from a one to almost a five. Yeah, so, that, you know, these utility companies that are not adequately, uh, you know, uh, doing enough um, to... Uh, be able to protect us or or harden us or um, decrease the effects of climate change through their own operations it's it's like the head bones connected to the neck bones yeah. connected to the chest bone you know I mean one thing affects another so he may be happy with his electric bill but when his home insurance bill comes due after the hurricane you know he, he may be in for a shock well and the issue of climate change is so much bigger than that. I, I the bottom Bottom line is Larry in Sarasota has a very efficient home, right? And he doesn't use a lot of electricity, and that's great. But there are this set of issues. You asked earlier about why would Tampa Electric customers? So you know, Tampa Electric has already passed on two hundred and thirty-eight million additional dollars for gas. So had they fully, you know, dove into energy efficiency and you know distributed rooftop solar, you know, maybe they wouldn't have needed another gas plant and they've already announced a course another course correction of 411 million so that's going to be about 650 million dollars right out of Tampa electric customers that essentially are going to go out of state we send about 65 billion dollars a year out of state so if we became more efficient 
or we were invested in more distributed energy. It's great that the utilities are building, you know, big solar farms, and that is essential, and we need that. However, what they have done politically over many years is sort of done their best to put up barriers for distributed generation. So they don't offer energy efficiency programs at the level that's meaningful. And they're right now in this very moment, the Florida Public Service Commission is in a a rulemaking and they are not um, sort of updating this process of setting conservation goals. So there's big policies and then there's climate change. You know, I mean, Florida is an important state. If we were a country, we'd be the 15th largest market. So we're second in electric vehicles. So we, what we do matters So when, you know, for instance, car dealers like Toyota that don't offer electric vehicles stand in the way of electric vehicle, uh, any kind of incentives or or charging infrastructure, even though that is starting, that has been Florida's history. So these utilities, for many years, I've been working on climate and energy issues for 22 years, have done their very best to lock in fossil fuels. So, for instance, same thing in Orlando with the Orlando utility. It's a utility that is city-run. And somewhat recently, about a year or so ago, they announced ramping down two coal units. But instead of going from coal to clean, they locked in 20 years of gas. Um, the University of Florida. So for all the gators out there, there is a proposal on the table at the University of Florida to build a gas-fired power plant on campus. I mean, it's a really not smart idea. And that would lock in the campus to all this gas, again, the cost. The Rocky Mountain Institute did an analysis. A renewables-only alternative would be $100 million less. But NextEra, again, the parent company for— NextEra is the parent company of FPL, That's right? right. They are in the running to build this gas plant. And the president of Florida Power and Lights, vice chair of the Board of Governors, right? There's already, we've already seen a lot of politics at the universities in general, but yeah. at the University of Florida, right? And there were protests over, you know, the ben potential Sass, of the president. Right? right. So why would you have a proposal on the table at the University of Florida, right? One of the top five top public that's going to cost $100 million more to build this plant. Why? To lock in customers. So it just becomes very simple that this is about companies that sell a particular product. And yes, we need energy. But, you know, this is not 50 years ago. There are a lot of things we can do to get more efficient, kind of like Larry. I mean, Larry could pop up solar panels. Well, Karen in, Dunedin, Karen in Dunedin sent me a message that her electric bill jumped 40 to $60 a month. So at least we yeah. were in an Uber the other day and that poor woman talked the whole Uber ride, which was fine, about her five hundred dollar electric bill. I, that's the stories I'm hearing. Yeah. Is that people this has particularly happened in the panhandle. Yeah, I'm talking to Susan Glickman, who's a clean energy advocate and lobbyist who's uh, been working in this field for a couple decades at least. And uh, we're talking about uh, utility companies, corruption in the utility uh, industry. We're talking about the politics of it. And we're talking about your electric bill. So if you want to join the conversation, you can call us at 813-239-9663. You can email us at dj at wmnf.org, or you can text us at 813. Three four three three zero eight eight five. I've got a call here from Cyrus in Tampa, who's been patient. Cyrus, you're on the air. 
Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I just wanted to touch on this whole issue of the parent company, uh, Nextera Energy. And I, 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 I'm just curious. I'm a big environmental guy myself. If you look at what that company is actually doing with the returns that they're locking in using these legacy fuels, um, not coal, right? Not yeah. oil, but mm-hmm. natural gas. So we're like incremental improvements. We're locking in these returns and we're investing those returns into solar, wind, hydro. I'm just wondering, like, as an environmental activist, why there's not really anything positive being said about that action. I mean, Nextair is one of the biggest generators of renewables in the country. Okay. That's exactly right. They are. They're the biggest wind and solar in the entire country, and they compete in all these states, but they don't compete here. So what what they've done... um, the money that's going out for gas, which we've talked about, right? I mean, I was just adding it up because for Duke, it's, I mean, we're talking about $1,800,000,000. It's $2.8 and it's $650,000,000 for Tico. So just think about all that economic, you know, wealth just going out of state to bring in fossil fuel going into a pipeline when we have alternatives. So, again, well, what, what Cyrus's point is that they're a big uh, developer of alternative energy sources, and I guess the question is, um, and I think I know the answer, but why aren't we seeing that more in Florida? Because in Florida, they have a captive audience. So, listen, we applaud them. I One of the groups I worked with for a number of years was the climate group in Next Era, which was called FPL Group, was a member. They were early on uh, advocating actually for a carbon tax in the earlier days of, of the evolution of people looking at climate change. So I applaud that. But they don't have to compete here in Florida because they have a monopoly uh-huh. and they bought uh, Gulf Power up in the Panhandle, right. a smaller utility, was owned by Southern Company, and essentially they were hemorrhaging money trying to build Plant Vodal up in Georgia, a nuclear power plant that was sort of overscheduled and overbudgeted and so forth. So and, they and sold that. And after that, that t- takeover of Gulf Power in the Panhandle, don't, they serve like more than 12 million customers in Florida or something like that, right? Is that what you mean by a monopoly, that they are the largest? Well, no, 75% of Florida are covered by investor-owned utilities, and those are monopolies. They've been granted a franchise. Like your cable company. Yeah, there's no choice. Right, yeah. I hear people ask a lot, like, why do they advertise? You know, why do they advertise when there is no choice? Yeah. You know. Right, so when they took over Gulf Power, though, I think they they got to something like 12 million customers up there, and people... People were uh, were paying, um, you know, double or triple under the new ownership than they were paying Gulf Power, which I guess explains why Gulf Power was hemorrhaging money. But but I think I think your point is not only that they're a monopoly, so they don't have to do more in Florida, um, but also that their efforts to obtain so much political leverage, so much political power in the Florida legislature has been very, very productive for them. 
It's just about making money. I yeah. mean, that's all it is. And and in the last week or so, they uh, were approved at the Florida Public Service Commission, all three investor and utilities, for another around $25 billion over 10 years for what they call storm hardening. And, you know, we need to do certain things, right? Poles break, and they replace them now with concrete, and there's some undergrounding. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it, it's the financial equivalent, for instance, for Florida Power and Light at about $14.8 billion over 10 years. So it's about a billion and a half dollars a year, which is the financial equivalent of building a gas plant. I mean, if you are a utility executive, your job is to put major assets into your rate base and, you know, bring home uh, whatever dividends for your shareholders. And that is their job. So in a state that's regulated, you need regulators who are going to do their job and not be captive to the utility. So, um, But Ron, those are appointed, you know, right? The public service They're appointed, that's appointed right, by the governor. By the governor. So there's a committee that's made up primarily of legislators. Now, remember, we talked about this earlier. The, these utilities, like other big companies, give a lot of money to the legislative process and, and to races in general, right? So the Florida Public Service Commission, which regulates the utilities, works for the Florida legislature. They're a creature of the legislature. The legislature nominates and then the governor picks. So, uh, you know, they have historically kind of rubber stamped, uh, but for the era when Charlie Crist as Republican was governor, um, he moved the needle on uh, the energy efficiency, actually, you know, significantly at that time and stood up actually before 2005 as Republican Attorney General and then again as a Republican governor uh, and, and helped uh, mollify some of these rate increases. Yeah, let me take another call. I've got Scott from Safety Harbor on the line. Scott, uh, you're with us. You're on the air with me and Susan Glickman, our climate activist and lobbyist. Uh, what are your comments? Good morning. Um, um, my comments are, it's not more of a comment. I have a question about, let's say the Fort Myers area is going to be rebuilding, obviously. <clears throat> is there any way that the power companies, while they're rebuilding, can make these homes more energy efficient when they're rebuilding this stuff? I mean, is that on them or is that on contractors? Well, I think the private, you know, the private property, uh, you know, rebuilding is going to be the responsibility of the property owner. But certainly they there's a you know, I my question would be, could they be burying more lines instead of, you know, having poles uh, vulnerable to wind damage from hurricanes? Thank you, Scott. Thank you for the question. You know, that type of thing. Do you think that that would be part of their, you know, rebuilding plans? Yeah, and that is part of it. Um you know, undergrounding the lines doesn't necessarily guarantee that you won't be without power or anything because there's lots of things that can happen. In fact, at uh, the Tampa Regional Planning Council meeting recently, the uh, Pinellas Park uh, commissioner there, uh, or council member, actually mentioned that she's undergrounded and her electricity went out. So mm -hmm. um, it's very expensive. And, and they're and they're doing it, and but it goes in the rate base. So I promise you, the utilities want to underground because it's another way for them 
to make money. In 2019, they essentially passed something that was rubber stamped. You know, the current president of the Senate's name is Wilton Simpson. And in 2016, he bought and sold he and his wife a piece of property to Tampa Electric for a solar farm. And he made $4.4 million into his personal pocket. And right after that, um, we saw this rubber stamping of undergrounding. So they get to do that pretty much wherever they want. But then everyone pays for it. So if you're seeing the undergrounding in wealthier neighborhoods or along the thoroughfares, you know, just think about whether that's always fair. So, again, my focus is climate issues. I do. I am concerned about consumers and people, low income people and the affordability issue, which has reached a problem. So. This is how it goes. And as long as we're on the presidents of the Senate, the next president of the Senate is a, a very nice lady named Kathleen Pasadoma from Naples. And the governor DeSantis appointed her 28-year-old daughter to be a public service commissioner, the Florida Public Service Commission. Wow. So you, you see, you know, sort of the influence. It's really hard uh, to think that, you know, there's no influence going on when you see those that kind of activity. Um, the same utilities in 2016, a uh, lot of organizations were involved in uh, running some uh, a constitutional amendment campaign uh, to open up solar. And you may remember that uh, in the end, it was exposed that one of the think tanks up in Tallahassee called the James Madison Institute um, was bragging about the constitutional amendment that the utilities uh, put on the ballot, that amendment one, the bad amendment one in 2016, right? He called it political jujitsu. And there ended up being a tape of that, which, you know, might have somehow got to me. (laughs) And all of a sudden, it's on the front page of the Miami Herald and the Tampa Bay Times about that. And and that was soundly defeated. But the utilities spent 30-plus million dollars, right? And they have unlimited pocketbooks. So you've got, um, you know, it's it's very, very difficult. Um, but in the age of climate change, building a power plant we don't need right. and not doing energy efficiency or putting up barriers to, you know, families and businesses. Um, you know, if you take the fuel cost out of the equation and you finance the solar or energy efficiency improvements, we can build new and build, you know, homes that withstand 170 mile an hour winds, but also are really, really efficient. Like Larry, in fact, the last three callers, you know, sort of had an element of that. And we would be, you know, just really unwise not when rebuilding right. areas that, you know, like should Southwest be rebuilt. Florida like Southwest Ian. Florida. That's right. You know, I want to go back to this business of the money, though. The money that these companies inject into the political system. Um, I think it was the Orlando Sentinel who was anonymously sent an investigative summary of an internal investigation that FPL did uh, for itself that showed that its own consultant company, which I think is that matrix company uh, who controlled this dark money group that was central to the whole ghost candidate uh, scandal in South Florida, They billed FPL for several million dollars before they began moving money through uh, their PAC or or whatever the dark money entity was. And they they also seemed to reveal that the same consultants had a plan 
to create a six-figure job for a member of the Jacksonville City Council who was opposed to selling the city's utility company that FPL wanted to buy. Now, I want to I just want to spend a minute talking about that because you've made a big point about how these companies are basically monopoly in uh, Florida power, but Jacksonville is kind of unique in that it had a public utility and FPL desperately wanted to buy it. And tell us the story of that. Yeah, at some point, you know, they just want to grow. As I've mentioned, they get a guaranteed range of a rate of return on capital expenditures. And I do think that um, it becomes difficult to continue to argue to build power plants. Uh, We have a disjointed planning process in Florida. Some states, most states have what's called integrated resource planning. but But we don't. We pull it all apart. So they have to do a need determination when they want to build a power plant. And then every five years, they say, conservation goals and then they do a 10-year site plan so for an example this year i think it was june when they did their 10-year site plan uh, florida power and light said they needed to build another 600 megawatts of gas they cited the texas grid problems and the that the fact that there was a cold snap in miami in 1989 they were so kind of made fun of, literally, you know, in graphics and, and that they pulled that plan back. But the fact of the matter is they're already signaling that they want to build another power plant, right? We've got to sort of change those dynamics. Um, well, I, I just taking you back for a second to this Jacksonville situation. You know, that is a publicly owned utility. Which is why they wanted to buy it, because they have to keep growing, the yeah. point is, right? Yeah. So they get more customers. And so JEA, the Jacksonville Utility, there are a number, Orlando. It's one of the largest yeah. public electric water and sewer utilities in the United States. It's like a big prize That's for right. these private utility companies to buy something like that. That's right. And the COO and the CEO are you know, I guess likely to go to jail and so forth. So, well, that's you know. another thing. People were in, have been indicted yep. over this. That's right. This uh, scheme to sell so that uh, this utility, the public utility. That's right. They were utilizing a, a firm out of Alabama to do what can only be described as dirty tricks. So the journalist at the Jacksonville Times Union, Nate Monroe, who was covering this, they were spying on him, tracking him. Oh yeah, that's him. another thing. The influence of this company on the the news that people get about the company and what it's doing and how it's affecting rates. That's and correct. Has been totally, I mean, that's been another whole aspect of this spooky, scary uh, story about FPL was the way they uh, surveilled you know, this journalist, they, Nate Monroe, they, they the, spied on him. There's they, a lot of spying. They There was a whole a ledger set because what happened at this Alabama firm that was doing dirty tricks, they had a, a you know, an internal breakup. And so in their lawsuit, all of these, you know, documents and things, including text from the Alabama firm with Florida, one of Florida Power and Light's lobbyists, who's well known, um, they're texting back and forth about the journalist because the gentleman from the the, the firm is is spying on him, following him. Right. And they were hoping that he would drink 
uh, alcohol, get drunk and drive. He was celebrating a and like that football Tampa, victory. Like that Tampa uh, case from a few years ago. Yeah. They were hoping to find him drinking so they could call the police and get him arrested for DUI and discredit him yeah. and his reports. Yeah, I mean, FPL. it's pretty pretty dirty. And you, you, you mentioned the South Florida races. This also happened in Central Florida. Yeah, in so Orlando, that's the right. Orlando area, too, where yeah. they, they basically bought a ghost candidate and promoted a ghost candidate. But the, it went even further than that, didn't it? I mean, my when I did, was doing some research for this show, I was just astounded by the lengths the that The tentacles they, are unbelievable. Right, also, they they, they yeah. purchased this uh, news outlet in Tallahassee, purchased a news outlet so that they could, uh, secretly purchased it, I should say, tried to make it a secret, so that they could promote positive stories about the things that the company was doing or promoting in the legislature or what have you. They per- purchased a, the capitalist or the controlling interest in it so that they could make these editorial decisions about what news should should come out about them. It's, it's extraordinary, really. It is. Um, it's endless, and they've been doing it a long time, and they do uh, have private investigators spying on people and... You know, who who knows where that all ends? There was a two-year investigation, a federal investigation that resulted in criminal charges around the uh, JEA, the Jacksonville, mm-hmm. uh, the attempt to buy the public utility in Jacksonville. So now there's criminal charges against the former CEO and the CFO. And uh, in the end, they didn't get to buy it, right? They didn't buy no, it. No, yeah, yeah. They, they did and, not buy it. And there's been uh, criminal charges in South Florida with uh, former state senator Frank Artilles, right? Yeah, that's correct. And, and Frank Artilles was um, the chair of the Energy Committee uh, at Juncture. I don't remember off the top of my head the year. And the weekend before the legislative session started, he was flown on a private plane to the Daytona Speedway. And this was reported widely in the press and f- folks were sending photos and things in a next era jacket. Jacket. And he, he uh, you know, did the green flag to start the race. And, you know, in Florida, they have now this sort of strict gift ban. Like you can't, couldn't bring a pizza into the committee room in the mm. Capitol, right? You can't give a legislator a bottle of water. But you can fly someone <laughs> and give them a $25,000 check if it's a campaign event. And so, again, these issues are all intertwined. So Frank Artilles was in Orlando at a victory celebration for a sitting state senator named Jason Broder. There was also a, a ghost candidate, a woman named Justine Ainotti. There's been quite a bit written about her even in the last week because she went to Sweden during the campaign. and Yeah, she wasn't yeah, even here. She wasn't <laughs> here, and two people have already just been sentenced. One of them worked with Senator Broder at the Chamber of Commerce in that community. So at the election party, Senator former Senator Frank Artilles uh, yells out at this party when the uh, election returns came and showed that this Senator Jose Javier Rodriguez and they put someone, Frank Artilles, a gentleman that he knew, a guy that he knew, in the race to siphon off a votes. And candidate. he lost by 34 votes you in mean, the end. You mean the critic of FPL lost, lost by 34 votes. That's correct. So this whole scheme with the ghost candidates totally affected the election in that, in that and district. And the control of the, the legislature, the Senate in yeah. Florida, 
was became a Republican. Right. Uh, you know. That was a huge, huge upset. Because how it affected the entirety of the legislation, uh, the legislature, and made it so much more, uh, e- so much easier for the Republicans to promote the entirety of the Republican agenda: abortion, don't say gay, stop woke. All of the all of the priorities of the of the governor became that much easier because of this ghost candidate scheme that was promoted. By FPL. Well, that's right. Even passing something like this, you know, election crime effort. Yeah, and- where's the election police? Where's DeSantis's election police on something like this? This was not something that his election police uh, investigated or prosecuted. This was local prosecutions in South Florida. So that's far, right. That's anyway, exactly right. And federal federal prosecutions of the CFO and the CEO in the Jacksonville area. That's part of the federal middle district of Florida, um, but none of it was from DeSantis's election police or police force. And now, from what I understand, uh, Tampa, uh, Tampa Bay United States Congressional Representative Kathy Castor has recently asked the Department of Justice to investigate FPL. Uh, in fact, uh, in the state as well, four members of the Florida House have asked, and I don't know how far this is going to go, but they've written a letter asking the Attorney General, Ashley Moody, to investigate FPL for all of these schemes, bribery, fraud, fake candidates, and campaign finance violations. They they have asked uh, Ashley Moody to investigate uh, the company's activities, including... Uh, Invoicing FPL uh, for over five million dollars, uh, the consultants invoiced them for over five million or three million dollars in the last campaign season for spying on the journalist and elected officials for publicly smearing anybody who stood up to the company for attempting to bribe the Jacksonville City Council member. Oh, and then there was that thing about selling liquor. From a secret bar oh. in Tallahassee <laughs> without a liquor license. I mean, that is just... Well, and I'll, I'll just add a couple more. I mean, my in Miami-Dade County, uh, the mayor there, Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava, who is just a, an amazing leader. Uh, she's actually went to Argentina for uh, last night for one of the big climate talks that's happening. So they, the same Alabama firm, put a candidate in her race against her... They paid him $63,000 a year, and they rented him a home. I think it was $2,800 or something. So there was a big, you know, again, you can search all this. Um, There's just been extraordinary press and coverage of this. And uh, at a recent board meeting, you know, I'm not sharing something that really isn't completely public. Um, One of the Bank America analysts, you know, spoke up at the next era board meeting and asked about this. So, you know, these folks are politically, but all of the utilities, all of the insurance companies, I mean, and, and, you know, the big players uh, get up there. I mean, you can just go and check out the Florida lobbyist directory and, you know, it's pretty intense how it works and you can sort of see uh, the tentacles. The tentacles, You you hire. 
they're lobbyists and they get you in front of people. And, um, you know, none of that is inherently bad. You know, these companies could do the right thing. But in my career, at one point, you know, Florida Power and Light was trying to build a 1980 megawatt coal fired power plant um, in St. Lucie County. And so, again, the the way our kind of compact with them is, is um, we have the incentives in the wrong place. Yeah. I have a question here from uh, Elisa who wants you to uh, explain Duke Energy's minimum bill adjustment fee. Yeah, there you go. So Elisa um, wants to know what yeah. what's the story with that? You know, there the utilities were trying to make an argument that somehow people with solar are being subsidized by people without solar. So this is um, a notion of a minimum bill. So it's a service charge and, and, and that's it. That's the idea is to theoretically level that, that playing field. Um, so it was very frustrating this last session that the utilities were arguing about, what they call it cross-subsidy when one set a customer subsidized. And it's actually what I was uh, in about the transmission lines, right? If you underground, it's very expensive. It goes in the rate base, but you're not seeing that benefit, mm. right? You're subsidizing the, the folks that are. So that argument falls away, though, with, um, with the utilities because by getting um, solar, you help to avoid building that next power plant. So everyone, you know, there's a value in that. There's the value of true value of solar. So that's it. I mean, it's a minimum bill. Uh, Duke bills are, are, are going up pretty um, hefty in, with the minimum bill. There's a 37.41% increase, which is about $16.23. That's going to be the bill impact from the gas so they built more gas, gas we didn't need. We don't do efficiency, right? And they want to lock in to gas. Yeah, I mean. yeah. well, uh, I've got uh, a couple comments here I want to share with you from some of our listeners who have come in uh, over email. Uh, Cindy says, uh, great discussion. Another rebuttal to some of the earlier comments. With almost every other expense like insurance, cable, medical care, food, etc., we can research and we can make less expensive choices, but we can't shop for our utility company. The actual customers have no influence. Um, yes and no, Cindy. <laughs> I want to suggest that actual customers have some influence because they have the power of their vote. And if you don't like the way that the Florida legislature uh, is uh, so uh, cozy with the utility companies and the advantages and incentives that they're giving them or allowing them, um, then you have the power of your vote uh, to make different choices. I mean, right now, the Florida legislature has been controlled by Republicans for a quarter of a century. Um, it doesn't have to be that way. Well, during the last uh, governor's reign, Rick Scott, who's our U.S. senator, um, it was uncovered this pipeline I've mentioned to you, the Sable Trail pipeline, that he had an investment in the pipeline. Um, in originally was was Next Era in a company called Spectra, and then Duke took a, a like $215 million position in that pipeline. So they're sort of all in it together. 
and he voted for the pipeline. And then when Rick Scott ran for the U.S. Senate, the reporting is more stringent. And it turned out his wife had a half a million dollars in next era stock. So, again, they voting for projects that they will, will themselves personally benefit. personally benefiting from and uh, voted for those new nuclear reactors. I was at that cabinet meeting and I testified, you know, to the concern about the costs. Uh, you know, nuclear went from $5 billion, They said it's going to be $5 billion. It was $25 billion for a plant. You know, it's like waiters in a restaurant. They want you to order the dessert and right. getting the bottle of wine because the more that's spent, the more they make. That is their business model. So unless you have sort of the hall monitor in the legislature that's going to say, okay, things are changing. I mean, the cost of solar's come down 90% in the last 90%, decade. Wow. And the secret sauce for all this is financing. Um, I'm on the board of a nonprofit called the Solar Energy Loan Fund Self, and they offer anywhere in the state affordable financing. The vast share of what they do is in low and middle income. Affordable financing. They're unsecured loans, so you're not losing, you can't lose yeah, your house. There's no mortgage on your house. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. So they can help with weatherization, all the, you know, lots of roofs and air conditioners. If you have an efficient home, a high efficiency air conditioner could reduce your bill by as much as a third. Now, uh, uh, how would people find them? I mean, and is it income based? Like you have to qualify? Have your income below a certain level? No, no, not at all. Just just search Solar Energy Loan Fund and it'll come up. We okay. call it South. Solar Energy yeah, Loan Fund. That's right. And listen, Climate First Bank, which has a headquarter in St. Petersburg, they have a 4.99% solar loan. So if you, I'm going to give the example of the Great Bay Distributor, the biggest Anheuser-Busch distributor in the state. They got solar, a megawatt and a half on their cold storage facility. Of course, they could write a check for it. Yeah. But in five 5.15 years, the savings from the solar paid for the improvements. So they get 25 years of free electricity. So, And that was six years ago when they bought it and solar's a lot less expensive and it's becoming better, more efficient and all of that. That's the model for everyone, right? I think the ultimate wedding gift would be to buy your kids solar, wow, right? Wow, what a great right? idea. What a great idea. You're, you're paying for their electricity bill going forward, mm -hmm. right? And uh, so it's a different world. But what the utilities have managed to do through their extraordinary political clout, you know, is to sort of lock lock in a system. Um, and climate change, with, if it was, they were just picking your pocket, it'd be one thing. But we're altering the climate of the planet. Yeah. And we're all seeing the effects of that and how it relates to all of our all of our bills and all of our ability, you know, where we can live, how much we pay for insurance, whether we can even get a mortgage. Um, if you I, I want to thank my guest, Susan Glickman, for being with us today and giving us so much information about the way our utilities uh, work in the state of Florida, how it affects so many facets of our lives, the you know, how how we have to be so attentive to corruption. And, uh, we, you know, we have to take our concerns to the ballot box. If you joined us late in the show, please feel free to go back and listen on demand from the Midpoint archives at WMNF.org Midpoint um, on the, or on the app or find us at uh, WMNF Midpoint wherever you get your podcasts. I also want to thank our WMNF volunteers who make the show go, like Jessica Green, who's running our soundboard, and Barbara Fling, who answers the 
phones for us. And as always, I thank you, the WMNF listeners, for your interest and support of Midpoint. If you enjoyed the show, please consider dropping a tip in the tip jar and please direct your donation to MPW Midpoint Wednesday. Please stay tuned for Talking Animals with Duncan Strauss. He's up next. We are WMNF Tampa. Thanks for listening. Thank you.